0: One of the news stories that went viral this week had to do with Chick-fil-A and their decision to restructure their corporate giving in order to pacify critics from the LBGTQ community. And I'm sure you've seen in the news over the past few years that Chick-fil-A has been rejected from concession deals in airports and uh, banned from some big East Coast cities because they've they have been giving financial support to charities that openly Oppose the sexual revolution. And this week, then, they announced that they won't be giving to those organizations anymore. Despite all of the LGBTQ protests and the media criticism that have been aimed at Chick fil A, the fact is that company grew last year to become the third largest fast food company in America. They rose from number seven to number three, which means they passed Wendy's, Burger King, Taco Bell and Subway, and so now only McDonald's and Starbucks are bigger than Chick-fil-A, despite all the protests against them. And yet Chick-fil-A's president said this week that they're making this move to stop giving to anti-gay organizations because in his words, these are his exact words, we thought we needed to be clear about our message. And he also said this provides more focus and clarity. And what's ironic about that statement is that the backlash from both sides of this issue was so strong and so immediate that the very next day, Chick-fil-A had to issue another statement in an attempt to clarify things even more. But the clarifying statement is still so ambiguous that the company now actually seems to have a bigger public relations disaster on their hands than they had before because both sides in the LGBTQ debate are unhappy with them now. Their critics say they still haven't gone far enough and their own customer base, their core support base is saying they feel betrayed. And anyway, early in the week, someone on social media asked me what I thought of that story and my response was pretty brief. I just said this, you never gain anything by appeasing the enemies of biblical righteousness. And although people make compromises like that all the time, and it always masquerades as magnanimity, that is actually an evil strategy to accommodate someone who opposes biblical righteousness. And then I said, in a little note, see Ahab, 1 Kings 20, (laughs) thinking, you know, they'll look it up and get the point, but not everyone understood that reference to 1 Kings 20. And so while I was combing through some of the questions I got in response to it, it occurred to me that 1 Kings 20 would be a great chapter to look at in Grace Life, especially with Thanksgiving looming, and so let's do that, 1 Kings chapter 20, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to preach about Chick-fil-A, that, I just wanted to explain that that story was the catalyst that got me thinking about this chapter. But what I want to talk about this morning is Thanksgiving with a look at how diabolically reprehensible it is to be ungrateful to God. And this chapter is the record of King Ahab's ingratitude after God twice bailed him out of trouble. Ah Ahab was, as you know from messages I've given over the years about him, he was one of the most corrupt and ineffectual and obstinately evil kings who ever sat on the throne of the northern kingdom. He stands as a negative example to us in almost every conceivable sense. Scripture devotes more space to him, I think, than just about any other king from the northern kingdom, mainly to give us a negative example. Don't be like this man, Scripture says. But in this chapter, 1 Kings 20 for the sake of the nation, God treats Ahab with amazing grace. He shows him incredible favor. He gives the evil king a double mercy that Ahab clearly does not deserve, and in the end, Ahab responds with brazen defiance rather than heartfelt thanksgiving. And so one of the central lessons of this chapter is a reminder of how important it is to recognize the Lord's grace in our lives and to give Him honor and glory and thanks. It's a fitting study as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday. So turn there if you haven't already found it, First Kings 20. This is a fairly large chapter, 43 verses. And I'm going to try to cover it all in one message. So fasten your seat belts and make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in the full upright position. <laughs> By the way, this chapter falls in the middle of the biblical record of Elijah's life and ministry, you know, and you know Elijah is one of my favorite characters, I've preached about him a lot here. This chapter, chapter 20, comes right after Elijah's meltdown at Horeb, where the Lord, you know, speaks to him with a sound of a gentle whisper or still small voice. And then at the end of chapter 19, you have three verses that describe the call of Elisha, and I know we've talked about that as well, Elijah, you know, throws his mantle on Elisha without actually even saying anything to him, and then Elijah just walks away. But in that simple act, he's basically appointing Elisha as his successor. And then Elijah is not even mentioned in our chapter, chapter 20. But it's not the end of Elijah's ministry because if you go on to chapter 21, You have that story about Naboth's vineyard, which we've also studied, and Elijah looms large again in that chapter. We did a study on the whole life and times of Elijah some 20 years ago, and we covered chapters 19 and 21 in detail, but we've always skipped right over 1 Kings 20 because it doesn't really add anything to a biographical study of Elijah. So we've always skipped this chapter, and I want to do it. This is a passage we have never dealt with here in Grace Life even though we have, I think, worked our way verse by verse through both chapters on either side of it. This chapter is about Ahab and his war with Syria, and because it's a little hard to understand without historical commentary on what's actually happening here, what I want to do this morning is read it to you in sections, and I'll explain the narrative as we go through it, and then after you've got the whole story, I want to talk about... Some of the key lessons that this chapter teaches. So you're going to have to keep your Bible open this morning and follow along. I'm going to read maybe four or five verses at a time and and then explain what's going on here. So are we ready? 1 Kings 20, starting with verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together, 32 kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Samaria, by the way, is the capital city of the northern kingdom. This is where Ahab's main palace is. And Ben-Hadad, verse 2, sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children Also, are mine. And the king of Israel, this is Ahab, answered, As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Now, a couple of comments here. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible, and I know many of you are, it calls him Ben Hadad, king of Aram. Aram is simply the ancient name of Syria. It's where the word Aramaic comes from. Aramaic was the language of ancient Syria. So, we're talking about Syria here. And here's the timeline. This is nearly a thousand years before the time of Christ. Ben Hadad is the king of Syria. The 32 kings who are with him are actually feudal princes. princes. They're, they're like governors of cities and territories, but they operate under Ben Hadad. They are at his command. So, I mean, keep these 32 guys in mind. They, they like to party, and they're going to show up again. Later in the story, Ben Hadad is this Ben Hadad is the second of three Syrian kings who had that name in the Old Testament. He is the son of Ben Hadad the first, who was mentioned five chapters earlier than this in First Kings fifteen, when Asa was king of the southern kingdom. Uh, that's Judah. That's the the Davidic, the proper Davidic dynasty. Asa was part of that, and Asa made a alliance with Syria. He purchased Ben-Hadad's friendship, the original Ben-Hadad, purchased his friendship by giving him gold from the temple in Jerusalem. You can read about that in 1 Kings 15 verses 18 and 19. And despite that, what was really an unholy alliance that Asa made, he was one of the better kings in the Davidic line. He was the king in Judah more than 40 years before Ahab took the throne of the northern kingdom. So now we're 40 years after Asa, 40 years after he took that gold and, and paid off Ben-Hadad I. So this is a different king of Syria, even though he has the same name. Both the timeline and the, the record of secular history suggest that the Syrian king we meet here in 1 Kings 20 is Ben-Hadad II. He is a son of the original Ben-Hadad. Scripture doesn't clearly differentiate between them for us, but archaeologists have found inscriptions that tell us these two kings, both named Ben-Hadad, ruled Syria one after the other. And also, just so you're not confused by this, a generation after this, there will be a third Syrian king who also takes the name Ben-Hadad, and he shows up in Scripture, comes on the scene in 2 Kings chapter 13. And Scripture identifies this third Ben Hadad always he's called Ben Hadad the son of Haziel. Haziel was the uh he was the interloper who assassinated our guy Ben Hadad the 2nd and usurped the throne in the northern kingdom. So in other words, Haziel's son basically took the name that was used by two kings in the the very dynasty that his own father had destroyed. It was kind of a cheesy way I think to to assert his dominance, and it can make Scripture confusing if you don't pay careful attention to which Ben-Hadad we're talking about. Our guy is the second one, and Ben-Hadad, that name, is actually more like a title than a name, it's the equivalent, the Syrian equivalent of the Egyptian word Pharaoh. So it's part of the king's royal identity. And here's what it means by the way. Hadad, that's the name of the Syrian god of thunderstorms. Hadad, he was he was the Syrian version of Baal. We'll talk about that. But Hadad was the god's name and Ben, you know, is the the Semitic word for sun. So Ben Hadad means something like son of thunder. And Ben Hadad the 2nd, our guy, is a true son of thunder. He's a warrior who just loves the fight. He's constantly at war, even though he doesn't seem to have been a very shrewd military strategist, because at this moment, the Syrian empire is in decline. The Assyrians the Assyrians were on the rise, so it was stupid for the Syrian king and his armies to lay siege to Israel. He was being threatened by the Assyrians, Ahab and the Israelites ought to have been his allies. They posed no discernible threat to Syrian power, so Ben-Hadad should have been seeking Ahab's help to fend off the Assyrian threat because Assyria was a common enemy for both Syria and Israel. But Ben-Hadad seems to think that if he could just gain an easy victory over the much smaller forces of Israel, this somehow I think he thought would strengthen his hand, so he attacks. And as you're going to see later in the chapter, even after he suffers a humiliating defeat, he comes right back again for another battle against Ahab. You cannot appease someone like that. In fact, it's not only a foolish strategy to try to appease an evil person like this, it is always wrong, it's sinfully wrong to try to please an evil adversary. It'll never gain you any advantage, and you sacrifice your own integrity by doing it. You encourage and enable the evildoer in his wrongdoing, and as the Apostle John says in his Second epistle, the person who gives aid or comfort to the enemy like that takes part in his wicked works. So this is wrong for Ahab to try to appease him, but he's as weak as he is wicked, Ahab is, and so his first reflex is to give in to this powerful king's demands. Verse 3, Ben-Hadad says, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and your children are also mine. And verse 4, Ahab agrees. He says, "'As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have.'" Now, what Ahab meant was that he was totally willing to be one of the vassal kings who served Ben-Hadad. He's saying that he would gladly be a subordinate, a figurehead ruler who would simply do Ben-Hadad's bidding, pay him tribute always affirm his policies, just like these 32 other kings, but Ben-Hadad is actually trying to provoke a war, he wants a military victory, and so he is not pleased, it's not enough, when Ahab immediately offers to basically surrender without a fight. So, verse 5, the messengers came again and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children... Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you, and they'll take it away. In other words, he's saying to Ahab, I don't want your subservience. I don't want your appeasement. I want to take possession of everything that you hold dear, which is a statement that's obviously calculated to start a war. Nobody can give in to a demand like that. He didn't really expect Ahab to just turn over his kingdom and his wives and children without a fight. But Ahab's instinct is always to appease the enemy rather than to fight. He always wants appeasement and peace rather than the battle. And contrary to what the average person today thinks, that is not an admirable trait. Sometimes it's right to fight. And this instinct always to appease is a moral weakness. Ahab is a craven, cowardly, gutless man. You see this throughout his life. He always seems to be pouting and tattling, and he's dominated by an evil wife, Jezebel. Jezebel is the decisive one. She's the one who always pursues vengeance. She's the one who takes action. And in fact, in the chapter that follows this, when Naboth refuses to sell his vineyard, Ahab goes to bed and mopes. Jezebel is the one who hatches the plot to kill Naboth. She's the person of action. According to 1 Kings twenty-one twenty-five, there was none who, listen to this language, sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Nobody, nobody did this more than him. He sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, but, Scripture says, Jezebel, his wife, was the one who incited him. So Ahab is a sellout, literally, and a poltroon, that's God's assessment of him, and here where it's clear that his course of action should have been crystal clear, he needed to fight, instead he takes the case to the assembly of elders. This is a group of leading men from the various tribes, he, the northern kingdom consisted of ten of the tribes, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 7... Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. He's talking about Ben-Hadad. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Good advice. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do but this thing I cannot do. In other words, I would happily be your servant and pay tribute to you and obey your commands, but I am not going to literally hand over my wives and children to you. And so Ahab's messengers, the end of verse 9, departed and brought word to Ben-Hadad again. Ben-Hadad sent to Ahab and said, the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Samaria, remember, is the capital city of Israel. It's, it's where, it's where uh, Ahab has his palace. So in other words, he's saying, I'm going to reduce your city to dust, and what's left of you and your possessions will be barely enough for everyone in my vast army to have just a handful of it. That's what we're going to do to you. And verse 11, Ahab, the king of Israel, answered, tell him... Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. That is the only thing Ahab ever said that I kind of admire. <laughs> it's a really clever, pithy put-down. And I doubt it was original with Ahab. It's probably a common proverbs proverb. The, the Romans had a similar saying. Theirs was, don't celebrate your triumph before you actually have the victory. Or better yet, there's a French proverb don't sell the bear's skin before you kill the bear so this is he's saying to him don't don't boast like you're taking your armor off when you you haven't even put it on yet it's a bold retort and it sounds frankly almost out of character for someone who is as chicken-hearted as Ahab is but by now he knows he can't possibly appease Ben-Hadad, so he quotes this scornful saying, and the message gets back to Ben-Hadad midday, around noon someday, and, and then Ben-Hadad and those 32 kings at that moment are in the middle of a drinking binge, verse 12, when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, the booths are these little little shelters that they built for themselves out there, like made of sticks and stuff. He said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. I told you these guys like to party. They're drinking in the middle of the day. And behold, verse 13, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And then he, this is the, the ever timid and indecisive King Ahab said, who shall begin the battle? And the prophet answered, you. Verse 15, then Ahab mustered the servants of the governors of the district, and there were 232. So you got 232 of the leading men of Israel. He gets together and arms them, and after he mustered all the people, and after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000, and they went out at noon. While Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. Now, you can tell, can't you, that... Ben-Hadad and his armies are unafraid and and frankly undisciplined in the face of Israel's defensive force because Israel really doesn't have much of an army at this point. According to verse 15, Ahab had mustered a total force of 7,232 men. That may sound like a lot. I mean, it's like the average attendance on a Sunday at Grace, right? That's their whole army. By comparison, the Syrian armies, which was a worldwide force, they were a massive host, tens of thousands, by most estimates, more than 100,000 in their army against 7,000 from Israel. The Syrians from Ben-Hadad on down didn't see Israel as a serious threat. They figured we could whip these people in our sleep or, or in a drunken stupor. So they're they're binge drinking in the middle of the day, which made them frankly, easy targets for the 7,000 of Ahab's. Verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first. So you've got this band of leading men who go out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming from Samaria. So as they see it, this small force is coming. Ben-Hadad said, verse 18, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive which tells you that Ben-Hadad thinks this small party of messengers are the only ones who are coming out. He's confident he can take them all alive, whether they put up a fight or not. So he tells his people, I want them alive either way, whether they fight or whether they're coming for peace, take them alive. He wants that probably so that he can gain some military intelligence by questioning them. He also uses them as trophies if he can take them alive. He is not prepared for what happens, verse 19, so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them and each struck down his man, verse 20. This means apparently that the 7,232 Syrians were dead in the first few minutes because each Israelite killed somebody. So you got 7,000 dead people in just a few minutes with few, perhaps zero, fatalities on Israel's side. They, each one killed his man. By the way, there is no further mention of the 32 kings, so presumably, and this would make sense, they would have been the first ones killed in this route. They're all drunk anyway, so they would have been easy targets. Still, verse 20, the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Now, as you read that, isn't it true that the hand of God's gracious providence is evident in all of this? This is God at work. Before these drunken Syrians are able to organize a force to resist, already thousands of Syrians are dead and the rest of the army probably most of them tipsy or totally drunk, they're fleeing for their lives. Ben-Hadad himself barely gets away on a horse. Ahab then joins the fight, and as the Syrian armies flee in a state of disarray, Israel's small army chases them and inflicts even more casualties. Verse 21 actually literally means it was a great slaughter. That's how it's translated if you're reading the New American Standard Bible. They hit them with a great slaughter. Verse 22, "'Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, "'Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, "'for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you.'" By the way, this is the same prophet that was mentioned in verse 13. He is an unnamed prophet in this chapter. This is not Elijah. Elijah. Or It would tell us his name, i'm certain. in fact, I think this was likely a prophet named Micaiah who appears and and his name is given just two chapters after this, and already for some reason, Ahab hates him because he says he never prophesies good for me, so as is who I think this, it probably is he he's not named, but he gives Ahab some very wise advice, he's saying prepare now because Ben-Hadad will come back with a fresh army and attack you again next year. So here's what was going on among those who escaped with the Syrian army, the remnant of the Syrian army and Ben-Hadad, verse 23, and the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And... Ben-Hadad listened to their voice and did so. By the way, this was stupid advice based on an unfounded superstition. Namely, they're thinking that Israel's God somehow has an advantage only because this fight took place in the hill country. And it is true that Israel's history was full of triumphs and divine manifestations that were associated with mountains. There was Elijah's recent victory on Mount Carmel. And Elijah himself, you know, fled to Mount Horeb, which is just an alternative name for Sinai, because Mount Sinai was the place that was associated with several famous displays of God's power. But only an utter fool would infer from the history of Israel that Yahweh might be at a disadvantage if you got him on level ground. And yet, as we've already seen, Ben-Hadad was just that kind of fool, Instead of troubling the Israelites again, he ought to have been seeking their help against the growing threat of the Assyrians. But just exactly as this anonymous prophet foretold, Ben-Hadad came back against Ahab the following year. The, The New American Standard Bible translates verse 26 literally. It says, the Syrians returned at the turn of the year. I read the ESV which says it was the spring. Here's why. The Jewish New Year is in September, late September in the fall, and it's called Rosh Hashanah. You've heard that expression. That literally means the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. The turn of the year comes six months later in the spring, and we know according to 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 that spring is the time when kings go out to battle. So, reading from the ESV, verse 26, "...in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel." So he chooses a place where the ground is flat. And the, verse 27, "...the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country." And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. I don't know why they do this. It doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense, but this was the style of warfare. You'd camp against the enemy, and at an appointed time, you'd engage in the battle. I'd have gone down at night and <laughs> I don't know. But this is how they did it. They encamped against one another uh, seven days. On the seventh day, the battle was enjoined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. So there you see the size of this army. 130,000, basically. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. I presume that's the city of Aphek. Now, this was a crushing defeat. More than 100,000 men slain in one day. That's that's amazing. And then you add to that the fact that 27,000 who escaped the original slaughter are all killed at once when a massive wall collapses on them. Twenty-seven thousand. That's just astonishing. Now, there is no way to look at this honestly and discount the hand of divine providence in delivering an unlikely victory like that to the armies of Israel, which Scripture compares to two flocks of goats. But keep following the story. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, has survived the slaughter and survived the collapsing wall And his advisors are hiding out with him somewhere in this city. They are very well aware of Ahab's reputation for appeasement and weakness. Verse 31, And Ben-Hadad's servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the houses of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put on sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists, and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben Hadad says, Please let me live. And he, this is Ahab, said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Does it seem to you, well, I read it with some expression there, but even just reading it flat, doesn't it seem that Ahab is happy that Ben Hadad survived this? He's happy. It's clear, isn't it, that he has, Ahab has a perverse admiration for this man who was not only more powerful than he was, but also more evil. And I have no doubt that Ahab thought he was being very honorable to, and very noble to let Ben-Hadad survive. After all, he, he's being charitable rather than harsh, Right? Shouldn't we admire his generosity and and celebrate this display of mercy? That's what your typical evangelical today would think. Be good to him. Be nice to him. It's always better to be nice than harsh, right? But what Ahab is really doing here is feeding his own arrogant self-deception. Just like so many people today, he is indulging in some hypocritical virtue signaling, He is not actually being virtuous. This is fake nobility. How do I know? How do I know that Ahab wasn't really a man of kindness and mercy? Just look at how he always dealt with the people of God. This is not true benevolence. It's pragmatic, self-serving, self-aggrandizing hypocrisy from a man who was a pathological coward... A a cruel, evil man who was merely pretending here to be good and beneficent. And Ben-Hadad's advisors are more than happy to play along with Ahab's charade. They're totally willing to forge an alliance with him now, now that it's clear they can't defeat him. Verse 33, now Ben-Hadad's men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then Ahab said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. This is a token of honor, by the way. What a wicked fool. He's actually making a public show of honoring Ben-Hadad. And verse 34, Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on those terms. He's going to turn him loose. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Now I'm going to pause in the narrative at that point. That is the end of Ahab's wars with Syria. From the military standpoint, this looks like a tremendous victory over Ben-Hadad. And in fact, the typical career politician might even think that from a diplomatic standpoint, Ahab has just gained a very shrewd advantage. Instead of being a vassal to Ben-Hadad, he's made himself an equal. Now they are in covenant together. But from a spiritual standpoint, Ahab has just sealed his own demise. For anyone who, who truly loves the Lord and understands what's really going on here, this entire episode, the whole chapter so far, is a disturbing saga about squandered opportunities. And the final nine verses in this chapter form a kind of epilogue. We'll look at those verses before the hour ends, I hope. If not, we'll stay late, but (laughs) for now, I want to point out three lessons to be learned from the negative example Ahab gives us in the way he dealt with this threat from Syria. Three instances of squandered opportunity. Number one is a missed opportunity to honor God. He missed the opportunity to honor God. Ahab's utter lack of gratitude or even recognition about the the debt he owes to God, it's stunning. He has been a God-hater for years. In fact, listen to how he is introduced in Scripture. The first time we meet him, the very first mention of Ahab comes in 1 Kings 16.29 when he takes the throne of Israel. He succeeds his own father on the throne. By the way, Ahab's father was Amri. He was the fifth king to rule the northern kingdom after Jeroboam split the nation. And historically, Amri was an important figure. But he gets very little attention in Scripture. He founded the city of Samaria, which became the capital city of the northern kingdom. And he was Amri was a spectacularly evil king who encouraged Israel to practice idolatry. Like Ahab, he hated Yahweh. And despite his political importance, he's, he's mentioned in all sorts of secular records, Amri... But Scripture says very little about him. He gets the equivalent of one paragraph in the whole Old Testament record. But what Scripture does say is in 1 Kings 16 verses 25 and 26 that that Amri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. And then when he died... Ahab inherited that legacy and managed amazingly to outdo his own father for all the evil he indulged in. In fact, the very first thing Scripture tells us about Ahab is how thoroughly evil he was. Listen to 1 Kings 16:29. Ahab the son of Amri began to reign over Israel and Ahab the son of Amri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria... And Ahab made an Asherah, that's a fertility idol. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's Scripture's summary of his character. Ahab is the one who enabled the slaughter of all Yahweh's prophets at the behest of his evil wife Jezebel. First 1 Kings 18.4 says Jezebel cut off all the prophets of the Lord, meaning she massacred them. And in fact, Obadiah makes that clear in 1 Kings eighteen thirteen. Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord. And Ahab then had spent several years trying to find Elijah so that he could kill him too. But all of that was just a symptom of the actual problem. Yahweh, or, or rather, Ahab hated Yahweh. He was drawn to the ritual fornication and the other forms of gross sensuality that were actually built into Baal worship. It was a very sensual kind of religion. The name Baal is from a Babylonian word that simply means Lord. Baal was basically seen as a fertility god and the Lord of the weather. That's why when when Elijah wanted to show Yahweh's dominance over Baal, what he did was stop the rain for three years, because Baal was supposed to be the god of the weather. I mentioned that the Syrian god, Hadad, was supposed to be the god of thunder. This was just a Syrian version of the same pagan god as Baal. Baal, by the way, was a masculine god with a feminine counterpart. And the feminine counterpart is the Asherah, who is mentioned in verse 33. And since he was in control of fertility, Baal was the focus of all kinds of fleshly perversions, Ritual fornication, pornographic art, homosexual acts, ceremonies involving nudity and flesh cuttings and even more grossly evil fleshly displays. You see a sample of this in the liturgy of those Baal prophets on Mount Carmel during their contest with Elijah. First Kings 18.28 says, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. This was their custom. This was customary worship for a Baal worshiper. It was all very fleshly. And in fact, Baal worship sometimes even practiced human sacrifice. According to Jeremiah 19 verse 5, devoted Baal worshippers would burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal. And all of these evils, especially the sexual perversions, were done in the name of love. Baal worships Baal worshippers were convinced that their religion was very altruistic, kind, gentle, loving, more, more loving than biblical Judaism uh, because Judaism had so much focus on the law and the threats of death and punishment to people who didn't obey. And by the way, Baal worship was at this moment more stylish, much more stylish than Yahweh worship. So Ahab is convinced that He is morally superior to the people who wouldn't bow the knee to Baal, very much like what we have today, where actually you're considered cruel and unkind if you reject the LGBTQ agenda. That's supposed to be in the name of love we're tolerant and accepting and and all of that. That's how Ahab is thinking. He loved the fleshly appeal of Baal worship. And he simply hated the law of Moses and the God who gave it, even though he owed his whole life and existence to Yahweh. Even when God is bailing him out of a serious threat to his entire kingdom, he's a living example of someone whose heart is so deceived that he can't see the most obvious truths. And did you notice, throughout this entire narrative, he never once pauses to thank God for deliverance or even to acknowledge that the Lord was the one who gave him these victories. A prophet brings him clear messages from God and and they are fulfilled to the letter, always to Ahab's benefit. It's, It's undeniably obvious in this story that the Lord's sovereignly, graciously, providentially intervened on Israel's behalf to defeat the Syrians, this is his doing, and does it twice, and yet Ahab seems to ignore the Lord's role in the matter. He never, never makes reference to it, which shows his deliberate contempt for the Lord and for his truth. Notice the words of the prophet, verse 13, "'Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord.'" Trust me, Ahab did know full well that Yahweh was the one true Lord. And in case he missed it, the prophet comes a second time with similar words from the Lord. Verse 28, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Twice he says it. Incidentally, Ahab had heard those words before on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings eighteen thirty-seven. This was part of Elijah's prayer spoken in the presence of Ahab so that all of Israel could hear it, where where Elijah prays, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And when Elijah won that decisive victory over the Baal priests, all the people, Scripture says, fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. All the people, except Ahab, that is, Scripture says Ahab went up to eat and drink. He was absolutely unmoved by the obvious display of God's power, first of all on Mount Carmel, and now in two battles against the Syrians. Here he has these two obvious demonstrations of the goodness and greatness and grace of God, and still he is unmoved. When Ben-Hadad demands that Ahab turn over his wife and children... Ahab is clearly frightened and bewildered, the situation looks hopeless, he didn't turn to God even then, he sought help from counselors. It was at God's initiative that a prophet came bringing the good news and at first the prophet's words actually sound too good to be true. How could tiny Israel defeat the massive armies of the Syrian king? But God fulfilled his promise, and trust me, after watching Elijah on Mount Carmel and these two miraculous victories over the Syrians, Ahab did know that Yahweh was his sovereign Lord, but he chose to disregard or, or rather to suppress that knowledge. He is so devoted to the fleshly pleasures of Baal worship and his own wicked agenda that he refuses to acknowledge the Lord's goodness to him. Quoting Romans 1, verses 20 and 21, we can say this about Ahab. He is without excuse, for although he knew God, he did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but he became futile in his thinking and his foolish heart was darkened. That's what's going on here. His mind and his heart are spiritually benumbed by his own perverted false love. He loved himself. He loved fleshly indulgence. He loved what was evil, but he had no love for God, and therefore he did not honor him as God or give thanks, even though he had so much to be thankful for. Whatever you do, do not squander an opportunity like that. Here's a second missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity to humble himself. It amazes me that although Ahab is an extraordinarily weak and timid soul, you see that everywhere, he's also utterly lacking in humility. In the entire biblical record of him, there's not a single instance where he ever expresses regret, much less repentance, in that regard, he's much like some of the politicians who are currently in control of nations around the world. He simply refused to confess that he was wrong ever. And in fact, at the end of this chapter, in the part we haven't read yet, but we'll skip ahead there for just a moment, notice, he gets a harsh rebuke from the Lord through the mouth of the prophet, and rather than receiving the rebuke and doing a little self-examination, the last verse of this chapter says, he went to his house vexed and sullen, vexed and sullen. He's vexed rather than penitent. He's irritated with God and with the prophet who bore the message rather than being contrite. He's sullen rather than sorrowful. And his contempt for God shows in both of these squandered opportunities. This is why he wasn't thankful when God blessed him. It's also why he wasn't penitent when the Lord chastened him. This is one truly wicked man. By the way, this expression vexed and sullen comes up again just a few verses later. Look look at chapter twenty one, verse four, when Naboth refuses to, to sell Ahab his land. Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. And look, he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Poor baby. Again, you you see the petulant weakness of Ahab's character. He is absolutely lacking any moral strength. He is strong-willed, but it's for all the wrong things. It's always a a childish, sinful stubbornness, not the kind of noble steadfastness that Scripture commends. And you see this again two chapters after this, when Ahab is consulting with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is one of the better kings in Judah's history. He sits on the throne in the southern kingdom, and Israel and Judah decide to join forces to fight the Syrians two chapters after this. Ahab consults his prophets, who are presumably the 400 prophets of Asherah, who Scripture says ate at Jezebel's table. So he wants word from these prophets. But Judah's king, Jehoshaphat, knew better than to consult those prophets. So 1 Kings 22 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire? Verse 8 And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. But here you see the attitude that kept Ahab from repenting. He hated the Word of the Lord. He hated the prophets of the Lord. He hated the Lord Himself. Why? Because Ahab expected to be served. How could he serve the Lord? He had been raised with a royal sense of entitlement and therefore he had no working moral compass, no sense of spiritual duty. He existed to be waited on, not to do any service himself. The victories God gave Ahab over Syria were perfect opportunities for him to repent, but he squandered those opportunities. Remember that at the outset of the story, Ahab was prepared to make an unconditional surrender to Ben-Hadad. But even after God blessed him with two miraculous, monumental military victories, Ahab refuses to surrender to God. Pretty stunning, isn't it? Now, you may be asking, why would God bless such a stubbornly evil man? Scripture answers that question. Romans 2 verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If God has showered you with abundant blessings or or a blessing on a massive scale like the defeat of a 100,000-man army... Don't assume that His kindness to you signifies that He approves of your worldview and lifestyle, especially if you're not living in obedience to His Word. It just may be that the goodness of God to you is meant to lead you to repentance and if so, don't squander that opportunity like Ahab did here. So he missed an opportunity to honor God, he missed a prime opportunity to humble himself And now third, we see he missed an opportunity to humiliate the enemy. Number three, and this, of course, is reminiscent of Saul's refusal to kill Agag. You remember, I hope, that that act of disobedience cost Saul the kingdom in the first place. Ahab's smug, ingratiating response to Ben-Hadad after God gave the victory is frankly nauseating. He sounds like the pathological virtue signalers of our generation. He wants to appear morally superior even though he has spurned every standard of true righteousness. So when Ben-Hadad comes in sackcloth with this show of phony humility, Ahab says, does he still live? He is my brother. Now it is true that Ahab was a more kindred spirit with this godless pagan, Ben-Hadad, then any king in Israel had any right to be. They, they were, spiritually speaking, like brothers. Again, Ahab has no wish to enter into covenant with the God who delivered him, but, verse 34, he easily enters into covenant with the enemy who would have destroyed him. He made a covenant with Ben-Hadad and let him go. And there you have the measure of how perverse sin will make a person's mind, especially when sin is married with ingratitude, a lack of thankfulness. Ahab elevates this enemy of all that is righteous when he actually had a moral duty to humiliate the man. He let him go even though he knew he was supposed to exterminate him and end what was actually a terrorist threat. Ahab no doubt foolishly believed that his generosity to Ben-Hadad made him seem large-hearted and magnanimous and merciful and forgiving, even though this was an act of blatant disobedience against God. Remember, Ahab had never shown this kind of mercy to the true prophets of the Lord. He let them be slaughtered to please his evil wife. What a warped and self-righteous notion of virtue. Now, Look at me with the epilogue and maybe we will stay a couple of minutes late and I'm sorry about that. We won't do it again <laughs> till next week. <laughs> Verse 35, And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, notice that phrase, at the command of the Lord, strike me please, but the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you've gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Now, okay, that seems awfully harsh to our postmodernized ears, doesn't it? This guy died because he refused to strike and wound his own fellow prophet. But notice, the text expressly says this was a command that came from God. God's Word is serious and woe to those who don't take it seriously. This disobedient prophet is guilty of defying the Word of God as surely as Ahab was and if it, as it seems, this disobedient prophet thought he was somehow being more charitable than God himself, if he thought of himself as morally superior to the Almighty, there's also an echo of Ahab's sin in that attitude. It's a common attitude among pagans, and it's more common than it ought to be among the people of God, thinking that we can be even kinder than God himself. And since this guy was a prophet, his sin was all the more egregious. It's true that his punishment is more immediate and more harsh than what we're accustomed to, but there are several biblical parallels where the Lord administers punitive justice swiftly and strictly just like that, including the cases of Achan or Ananias and Sapphira. And we can't really pause to talk about that part of the story any further, but just keep it in your mind that this episode shows what a serious sin any kind of deliberate disobedience is. Verse 37, Then the prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out in the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else... You shall pay a talent of silver, and as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, "So shall your judgment be. You yourself has decided it." In other words, the judgment was defined from the start. You just admitted you knew it beforehand. You either die or you pay money if you lose this guy. So this is just like when Nathan told David a parable that illustrated the very sin David was guilty of, and David unknowingly pronounced sentence against himself, Ahab does that here. Verse 41, Then the prophet hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. In other words, Ahab, your life is over and you're going to lose the throne, lose your kingdom, lose your life, and that's exactly what subsequently happened. Verse 43, "...and the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Thus his doom was sealed." They have faces in eternity, uh, an eons of regret under the endless outpouring of God's wrath. He will never, ever be able to claim that he didn't have an adequate opportunity." He simply refused every opportunity he was given. He refused to honor God, he refused to humble himself, and he refused to humiliate the enemies of righteousness. Let me end this sermon with words from Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. These same words are quoted three times in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, melt away the hardness from our hearts. May we not utterly squander the many rich opportunities that you've graciously given us here at Grace Church in our private lives this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Make us truly thankful. Fill our hearts with a love for your Word, with a desire to obey. Give us steadfast devotion to Christ, we pray in His name. Amen.